As we come to the time for our sermon this morning, we are finishing our series on the book of Amos this week and next. And this week we're thinking about the day of the Lord. And I want to start with a story about Harry Truman that Billy Graham talks about in his book on Revelation. Now this is the other Harry Truman. He was a caretaker of a recreation lodge on Spirit Lake, which is about five miles north of Mount St. Helens in Washington State. And in 1980, geologists had been studying Mount St. Helens, and it was an inactive volcano, but they were picking up rumblings, and they were beginning to think that it was going to perhaps explode into life again. And so they warned people in the immediate area that they should leave. And Harry responded, nobody knows more about this mountain than Harry, and it don't dare blow up on him, he said. But on the 18th of May, at 8.31 in the morning, the mountain exploded. Concussive waves traveled faster than the speed of sound, and they flattened everything for 150 square miles. Millions of tons of rock disintegrated into ash and disappeared into a cloud reaching 10 miles into the sky. In fact, a wall of mud and ash 50 feet high buried Harry's cabin as the mountain erupted with the force 500 times greater than the nuclear bomb that leveled Hiroshima. And Billy Graham kind of finished that story with this. He said, Harry is a legend in that part of Washington State where he refused to listen. He smiles down at us from posters and T-shirts and beer mugs and balladeers sing a song about old Harry, the stubborn man who put his ear to the mountain but refused to listen. Well, we're living in the midst of interesting times here as well. Uh, no volcanoes yet, but... We have COVID, and it just doesn't seem to go away. We've had the most active hurricane season ever recorded. We have political chaos. We have economic chaos. We have all kinds of anxiety and questions. And people come to me and ask the question, Dale, what do you think's going on? Is this like biblical plagues? And sometimes they ask, is this like the beginning of the end? Is this signs that, that Jesus is coming back? And the question comes, uh, like Harry, should we be listening for warning signs? And here, I think, is where the book of Amos can help us. So let's bow in prayer as we open that book. Father God, we live in interesting times. We live in times where it's not the way it has been, and we're not sure it's ever going to go back to that. We live in times of uncertainty, and we live in times of anxiety. And Father, we pray as we read your word this morning that we would hear your promises, that we would receive your comfort, and that we would go forward in the courage to walk with you. And we pray for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in Amos, it's a challenging part. It's this section on the day of the Lord, which is Amos's way of talking about the coming of the end, which is another way of saying God's judgment is at hand. And Amos is going to tell the people of Israel that after God judging them for their lack of righteousness and justice, which we've looked at for the couple of past weeks, he's now decreed judgment. And he 
gets that through four visions that God gives him. The first vision that Amos gets is one about locusts. And here we're in chapter 7 of the book of Amos. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. So his first vision is, is this vision of locusts who come. And it says, after the first cutting and the second cutting. So in Israel, they were able to get two crops off of the land for when it comes to hay or, or straw or whatever it is they were growing that they would use for feed. And the first cut had to go to the king. That was his share. The second one was the one they got to use. It was the one that they got to feed their animals with or they got to sell for food. And the locusts come and threaten that. In other words, their lives are in threat by that. And, and Amos intercedes for the people and says, God, don't do it. And God relents. And then God gives him immediately a second vision. And this one is one of fire. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. The first vision was really, really concrete. The second one, not as much. It's about fire and the deep and the land and uh, perhaps not so much a forest fire image as sort of a fire from the mouth of a dragon type image where this fire just comes down and destroys. And again, Amos intercedes for the people. And again, God relents. And he says this won't happen. But it's not the end of the visions. Amos sees a third one. And it's about a plumb line. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. And I will never pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. And the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam, who was the king, with the sword. A plumb line is you probably familiar, is just a weight on a string. You hold the string, the plumb line falls down, and because of gravity, that string is completely vertical. It's how they used to do before they had levels, how they used to make sure a wall was straight. And God has this image of standing beside Jerusalem and just measuring, are they, are they right? Are they straight? Are they righteous? And... There is no intercession in that story. It's just God saying, I'm measuring the people for justice, and I'm measuring the people for judgment. Then there's a section in the rest of chapter 7 that just is where the high priest comes to, to Amos, who was actually from the southern country of Judah, not from Israel, and tells him to go back home, that he's depressing the people and he's depressing the economy, and he just needs to quit all this talk about God being angry. And he needs to go back home. And at the end of that, at the start of chapter 8, Amos gets a fourth vision. And it's one of ripe fruit. 
And this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel, and I will never pass by them. We're reading this morning from the English Standard Version. I like it because it's the most literal translation of the Hebrew, but sometimes the NIV can capture uh, what the ESV loses in its literalness. And in this one, it's all about a play on words and how you translate from Hebrew into English when there's a play on words. What the NIV translates it, which I think captures the story a little better, God asks Amos what he sees. He says, I see ripe fruit. And God says, the time is ripe for my people Israel. In other words, there's a, there's a pun, there's a play on words in here. And what the vision is trying to say is God's judgment is coming. God has said it four different times in four different ways in four different visions. Twice he's sort of backed off a little bit, but after that he's kind of come back and said, no, no, judgment is coming. And we'll look in a minute or two about what that tells us about us, because I think that's important. But the rest of chapter 8 is this shift to talking about the day of the Lord. If the first part is saying judgment is coming, the second part is saying, what does this judgment look like? And it's this idea of the day of the Lord. And three times in the rest of the chapter, Amos will describe it by saying, in that day or on that day. And that's just prophet language for that day is the coming day of God at the end of time. The first one we find in Amos 8.3. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. And, and then Amos explains why the judgment. Hear this, you who trample on the needy. And bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will all the new moon be over, that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great. That is how they measure food small and the money that they get for it great. And deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. So in that passage, what Amos is saying is he said, judgment is coming because of the way you've treated the poor. And... There's going to be this time of wailing and lament and mourning because God's judgment is becoming. And then he goes on with another in that day. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, your songs into lament. I will bring sackcloth in every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And in the second day of the Lord, he talks about the sun going down and darkness coming, that feasts are going to end, that everyone's going to be bald, which I understand, but actually means that everybody will shave their head in mourning. Um, and he says it'll be like mourning as for an only son. And if you think back, where have we heard all that before? It's really the plagues of Egypt that he's describing. 
and he's talking about the death of the firstborn son, which was the final plague. He's talked about the darkness. He's talked about the Nile River. He's talked about the Nile River in the section before that. And he's saying Israel will experience plagues like what Egypt experienced. And then there's one third one, and this is the last one, and then we'll start talking about what this all means to you and me. So just hang in there. One more. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the third one, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. And he talks there about on that third day, there being famine and thirst with an image, first of all, that that, that is describing spiritually what's happened to the land, but then it's going to happen physically, that there will be this time of judgment of God because they're not listening to him, that there will be a literal famine on the earth. So what do we do with all that? We've read a lot of scripture this morning. And the question just comes, well, yeah, okay, Dale, you started out with an interesting story. You got into all this scripture. You talked about, you know, what does it say to us? What does it all mean? And I just want to say four things that I think this means. The first one is why the judgment? And what these chapters are saying is that God has been judging the people of Israel because they have failed to live out what he asked them to. They haven't lived out their alleged faith in practical ways. He talks about the poor. He talks about those that have less. Kind of that reflection of the sermon last week about justice. And Jesus, in his famous parable about the sheep and the goats, you know, he says, we're going to shepherd the sheep and the goats. And he says, you'll know them because, you know, the, the good guys are the ones who visited the sick and gave food to the hungry and uh, visited those in jail and helped the poor. In other words, let justice flow like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Why the judgment? Because what they claimed was not what they lived. And maybe the question comes for us this morning. Are we living the claims that we make? The second one. What will the judgment be like? And what Amos predicts is really the destruction of Israel that will happen about 30 years into the future from when he spoke. Israel will be captured by the Assyrians. They'll go into exile. It'll be a time of devastation for the country. People will be killed. People will starve to death. It's going to be an incredibly dark time as all wars are. And it's interesting when Jesus was asked about the end times, you know, because we're trying to figure out if we're in those times. Jesus talked about the fall of Jerusalem, which was going to happen about 30 years into the future from when he was speaking. In AD 70, the Romans came and they destroyed the temple. The the Jewish people had rebelled, and they came to crush that. And so they destroyed the temple. They did some damage to Jerusalem, but not as much. And then about 132, 134 A.D., they rebelled a second time. And that's when 
the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They tore down everything that was left. And they actually banned Jews from living in Jerusalem. They made it into a Roman city. And Jesus tells the story of the end using those images. Um, it's sort of like, what do you think is bad? Well, the end is going to be worse. And it's interesting in Matthew 24, it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him and said, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And, and Jesus goes on to describe that, that there's going to be all kinds of stuff that happens. But that's not the sign that the end is imminent. Then will appear in heaven, Jesus said, the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And what's interesting is, you know, he talks about there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines, there's going to be all this stuff. And then he says, but that's not a sign of the end. And then he says, well, what is a sign of the end? And he says, the sign of the end is the Son of Man coming in all his glory. <laughs> in other words, the sign of the coming of Jesus is the coming of Jesus. There is no other sign. There is no other warning. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I come like a thief in the night. If you knew when I was coming, you'd be prepared. Elsewhere, he says, no one knows the time or the hour. It's just certain that he's coming. And Billy Graham has an interesting take on that we'll look at in a moment. But all these things are not signs of an immediate end. But like Mount St. Helens, the mountain is shaking. And it is a warning. The third thing is this idea of intercession. Is that Amos intercedes for the people in the first two visions and God actually relents. Some say, you know, when you read the various translations, some say relents. Some say repents. Some says changes his mind. Whatever, what God said did not happen. So some people say God changed his mind. Some people say God never intended to do it because he never changes. And here's what I believe. I believe the Old Testament teaches us that God's covenants and his intentions are unchanging. But every one of his promises is conditional. Yeah, you heard that right. Every one of his promises is conditional. He promises good things, but the implication is we are following him and we will receive them. He promises judgment, but the implication is if we repent, he will stop. See, that's the whole point of the book of Jonah. Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh and to preach that God was going to destroy the city. You know, the story of Jonah, he... he Goes elsewhere, he gets swallowed by a whale, he gets spit up, he says, okay, I'll go. He goes and he preaches to Nineveh. Nineveh repents and God relents. God changes what he was going to do. 
and it ticks Jonah off. Jonah chapter 4, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. We read that word relent an awful lot in this thing. Now, I believe that one of the things that God calls us to is to be interceding for the world, to be asking for God's mercy, that he would relent. And here's what, where Billy Graham's book, Approaching Hoofbeats of the Apocalypse, um, it's his book on the first about seven chapters of Revelation, but he develops the thesis in there that we can pray for God to delay his judgment. He talks about the importance of praying for the world. Not that God's judgment will be put off forever, but that it can be delayed. And here's what he says. Before judgment falls, God always warns. So before Nineveh repented, God changed his mind. He spared them, and judgment did not fall on Nineveh for 150 years. Then Nineveh was destroyed by the invading armies. Then came God's day of judgment. He says, I believe the judgment of God can be withheld for a period of time. And it doesn't even take the repentance of a whole city to delay God's judgment. Abraham was granted delay if he could find a mere ten righteous people in Sodom. So he says, the judgment day is coming. How long will God postpone the judgment? We don't know. But I began to think, you know, if Billy Graham was right about that, that our prayers can affect God's timing, perhaps that begins to explain why no one knows the hour. Because God is willing to delay if his people pray. Well, I'm not saying you have to believe that. I kind of believe that without being dogmatic. But what I am dogmatic about is that praying and interceding for our country, for our leaders, for our church, for ourselves, is what God calls us to do. And I believe it also shows us that our prayer changes things. That God works out His plan in response to our prayer. It doesn't shape His plan, it affects His plan. And that all leads to the last point this morning, this idea of the last day. If you remember how the book of Amos started, it started with judgments on seven countries all around Israel and then Israel itself. And each of those judgments was in the same pattern. It says, for three sins, even for four, God is angry. I will not turn back my wrath. I don't know if you noticed, but in those visions, there was three visions and then a fourth. There was a break between them. It's like Amos has gone back to the beginning to get the model for his uh, book here. And when Amos talks about in that day, we've looked at three of them. But there's a fourth. It's just that it's completely different. Which is how he's used that for three and for four. And the fourth one says in chapter 9, verse 11, In that day... I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches, 
and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by, na by my name, declares the Lord who does this. I will raise up the booth of David. I will raise up Israel again, because David was the king who personifies Israel. It's about a day of renewal, a day of restoration. The day of the Lord of judgment is not the end of the story. There's another day of the Lord coming, an endless day, a day when God returns, when he breaks fully into our world. It's the promise of the coming of the Messiah. It's a promise of repair and restoration and rebuilding. And it's a promise that the book ends with in verse 15, the very last verse of Amos. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And he's talking there about the eternal state. And we're going to finish the book next week by looking more deeply at what this is. Because I think next week as we start Advent, that four Sundays before Christmas, it's what Advent is all about. Advent truly is looking at the second coming of Jesus. It's preparing ourselves, not so much for Christmas and celebration, though it's that as well, but it's actually preparing ourselves that Christ is going to come again. And are we ready? That the real meaning of Advent is preparing for his second coming. When he will usher in that time of perfect righteousness and justice, where there will be this time of judgment, perhaps, on the wicked and the sinful, but this time of restoration and rebuilding and repair for those of us who follow him. So we started by asking that question. We're in the midst of um, unprecedented times. Isn't that what we always say now? Is it a sign of the coming of the end? Well, it's a reminder that the end is coming. It's a reminder that this earth is not all there is. That we have a greater promise beyond this. It's a reminder not to get too comfortable here. But I don't think it's a sign that Jesus is going to come tomorrow or next week. He well might. But he sort of told us, you don't get a warning of that. That just happens. But things are going to happen in the world that remind us that we live in a fallen place, that we have this relationship with God that will help us. And it's this reminder that we need to be in prayer for his world, that we need to be interceding for what's happening in Ethiopia, for what's happening in the Middle East, for what's happening in the United States, for what's happening in the hurricane-ravaged Central America, for all these things, we need to be interceding. But the promise is that those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, those of us who have asked for His forgiveness and have begun that relationship with Him, that the day of the Lord that's coming is this day of rebuilding and repair and restoration. It's the coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's the coming 
of God's eternal reign and his eternal time with us. Encouragement this morning. Yes, there's all this stuff. Yes, it's a warning. No, it's not the end. But it reminds us that the end is coming. It tells us to be doing the righteous and justice that God calls us to. Calls us to be interceding for the world. And it calls us to live with hope for what God is doing in the future. And so, Father, we thank you for this book of Amos, this book that teaches us so much about what's happening around us and helps us understand more of what we see. Father, we just pray that you would be with us in these times. We pray for our world. We pray, God, that you would relent, that you would spare your people. Father God, we pray that you would give us the assurance and the courage to walk through these times that we know that Jesus is coming, that your spirit is present with us in this moment, and that we will get to spend eternity with you because of our faith in you. And we thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen.